and welcome back to the Homeric Epic Podcast. I'm glad you've chosen to join me again, and in this episode, you might have guessed it, we will discuss Book 4 of the Iliad. Before we dive into Book 4 and its wanton carnage, let me quickly recap what we covered in Book 3. After the rallying of the armies, the Trojans set out to meet the advancing Greeks with Paris at the head of their army. When the two battle lines are finally drawn, Paris makes an offer for single combat with any of the Greeks, to which Menelaus happily agrees, causing Paris to try and shirk his commitment. This garners him harsh criticism from Hector, who lashes out at his younger brother for his cowardice, and also for being the cause of the entire war. Paris says to him, you cannot deny the gifts of the gods, but does eventually agree to a duel with Menelaus. Heralds are dispatched to summon Priam from Troy, in order to perform the binding oaths for the duel, and in the meantime, Aphrodite summons Helen from her chamber to the walls for the Tecoscopia. Helen arrives, filled with longing for her home in Sparta, and we are shown the disdain the people of Troy hold for her. Old King Priam is the only one who shows her any friendship, and invites her to sit down next to him. He then rather naively asks her who each of the Greek captains are, and we are given some exposition on many of the important characters in the story. The heralds then arrive at the city to inform Priam of the duel, and ask him to make the sacrifices for the binding oath. We then return quickly to the plain for a tense scene. Agamemnon makes the oath, Hector shakes the lot, and Paris is designated the first cast of spear. The duel does not start well for Paris, to say the least, and Menelaus quickly gains the upper hand. Just as Paris is being dragged by the helmet towards his certain death, Aphrodite, his patron goddess, snaps his chin strap and whisks him away to his bedchamber, safe from harm. Aphrodite, doing what she does best, beckons Helen back from the wall to Paris's bedchamber, saying he is safe from the duel. Helen sees through the goddess's disguise and refuses to join her cowardly husband. Aphrodite threatens Helen, who is frightened into submission, and the book ends with a strange erotic encounter between Helen and Paris and their ironic lovemaking while Menelaus searches for his missing duel partner. The first three books of the Iliad ensure that the stage is thoroughly set, and it seems we are on the cusp of either battle or peace. Agamemnon proclaims at the end of book three that the duel is over and Menelaus is the victor, and we the reader are inclined to agree with him. Thus the beginning of book four seems like it might lead to the return of Helen to the Achaeans, since we already know that the Trojans are more than willing to give her up. As always, though, let me quickly recap the events of Book 4 so they are fresh in your mind. I do encourage you to read along with the podcast and comment angrily on my substack about how wrong I am and whatnot, but also because there are so many layers to the Iliad, so let's unwrap as many as we can. Book 4 begins with a scene on Mount Olympus. Always the one to stir the pot, Zeus pokes fun at Hera and Athena for their lack of intervention on behalf of their favorite warrior Menelaus. Zeus tricks Hera into instigating the breaking of the truce between the armies, so as to not arouse suspicion of his promise to Thetis. This then moves the action forward, and Athena whisks down to the battlefield. Athena singles out the Zelian captain Pandarus for committing the treachery, mostly because he's an archer, and we are treated to the fantastically described stringing of the bow scene. Homer holds us here for a couple of pages in the tension of the bowstring, before winging the hungry arrow straight at Menelaus. Athena, not forgetting her champion this time, deftly redirects the arrow to a non-mortal crack in Menelaus's armor. Despite being a non-mortal wound, it doesn't look like that from far away, 
and the Achaeans think their champion has just been treacherously killed. With such a break in the truce, the Achaeans are ready for war. Agamemnon marshals the troops, inspecting each group and giving details on the relevant characters. The order he visits each group is important, as is what is said about slash to them. Some he exhorts for their eagerness, others, either deservedly or not, he shames them for their apparent unwillingness to fight. The whole inspection of the troops episode is meant to tee up the final inspection of Diomedes, who, as I have mentioned before, is about to feature prominently in the next two books. In this scene, we are plainly shown Diomedes' sophrosune, or his soundness of mind, when responding to the undeserved rebuke from Agamemnon. But with the troops arrayed in proper order, Homer marks the movement of armies with another impressive set of similes. We have the Argives and the Trojans compared in different lights, and the crash of arms is compared with the crash of winter torrents raging down from the mountains. Young Antilochus, son of Nestor, makes the first kill of the story, and the book concludes with the tit-for-tat killing and being killed that fills so many pages of the Iliad. We are right in the midst of battle with Athena guiding us through the carnage, and we wonder, what next? What is next is that we'll be discussing Book 4 of the Iliad, where Zeus showcases some very interesting political maneuvering, which I'd love to dissect here. Let's keep in mind what we know about Zeus's promise to Thetis and the judgment of Paris. As the readers, we are well aware of the details of the agreement between Zeus and Thetis, but the rest of the gods are not. Zeus knows that the fighting between the armies must continue if he is to preserve his promise to Thetis, yet at the present moment it appears as if the armies may be reconciled. Thus he must intervene to prevent peace. But if he were to openly say, Athena, go down there and stir up some trouble, the other gods might be alerted to his sudden change in attitude to what we find out is his favorite city. To accomplish his plan, the Boule Dios, Zeus kind of needs to throw Troy under the bus. I'll mention why he doesn't want to do this explicitly in a moment. Instead, he goads Hera and Athena on, highlighting Aphrodite's protection of Paris in light of Athena and Hera's lack of intervention on behalf of their favorite, Menelaus. Now, remember back to the first episode where we talked about the judgment of Paris. Hera, Athena, and Aphrodite were all vying for the golden apple from Paris. And now we are seeing the consequences of his decision play out. Paris is under Aphrodite's protection and has garnered the enmity of Hera and Athena. Zeus's jab here is well placed, and it strikes a nerve with Hera, who explains that up until this point she has toiled much to bring about the Trojan War. Zeus uses this opportunity to remove himself from suspicion of supporting Achilles, and he makes his feelings for Troy extremely clear. Quote, for all the cities beneath the sun and star-strewn heaven, lived in by earthly men. Of these is holy Ilion especially honored in my heart, and Priam and the people of Priam of the fine ash spear. For never has my altar lacked fair portion of libations and smoke of burnt offerings, since we receive this as our honored privilege. End quote. Hera replies, saying Argos, Sparta, and Mycenae are her three favorite cities, and Zeus may destroy them at any time he wishes, and she will not intervene. Importantly, she agrees to a bit of give and take here, so that she may see Troy destroyed. This is exactly what Zeus wanted. In one motion, he has initiated the fulfillment of his promise to Thetis, without arousing any suspicion towards himself, by making it appear as if Hera has instigated the breaking of the truce between the Achaeans and Trojans. Very clever political maneuvering by Zeus, but what's the point? I'd argue that there are two explanations for this. One is an in-character explanation for Zeus's actions, where he doesn't want to start an argument with his wife. 
Zeus says in Book 1 that his promise to Thetis could cause problems between him and Hera, so this is certainly plausible. It could also be that he doesn't want to upset the cosmic balance of the gods, who each have their own favorite side in the war, and him taking a firm stance on the conflict could be seen as unfair. So such behavior is in character for Zeus, but why is this scene included for us, the reader? The other explanation for the scene is this. Time and time again, Homer shows his gods swabbling and fighting amongst themselves, trying to protect their favorites and destroy others. They lie, cheat, deceive, and abuse each other throughout the entire story, and the mortals take all the damage for it. Zeus and Hera so nonchalantly discussing what cities they allow each other to obliterate makes you question the entire point of the Trojan War at all. Indeed, the fates of humans are just playthings for Homer's gods. Really, the only meaningful difference between the gods and mortals is that the gods cannot die. The Roman literary critic Longinus sums up Homer's attitude towards the gods quite well in his work On the Sublime. Quote, It seems to me that Homer, in bringing to the gods a range of suffering, including internecine conflicts, grudges and vengeance, tears and bondage during the Trojan War, has made his men into gods in terms of strength and his gods into men. End quote. Think about that. The gods exhibit nearly all of the worst qualities that humans possess, and the mortals, in the face of omnipotent superbeings, continue to fight bravely, protect their friends, and defend their city, even when many of them know they are doomed. This scene of the gods toying with the fates of men is part of a larger theme within the Iliad. Much like our own lives, there are numerous powerful forces that we have no knowledge of or control over. They are the unseen forces of fate that hold mortals in their grip. In his tale, Homer gives us both sides. He shows the mortals struggling valiantly against gods who would destroy their cities at the drop of the hat, and he also shows us the mechanisms of those forces, mechanisms that in this story we recognize in ourselves. If the forces of the world are instead the whims of gods and goddesses, they're much more easy to understand, aren't they? In this way, Homer gives us a glimpse into the mind of Dark Age Greece, struggling to make sense of a cruel, harsh world. We still may wonder at the apparent hypocrisy of Zeus, who claims to love the city of Troy that never leaves his altars unfilled, but then is also bent on its eventual destruction. To understand this better, we need to be cognizant of the ancient Greek ideal of xenia, which translates as hospitality or guest friendship. Xenia describes a protocol to be followed when a guest arrives at the home of a stranger, but boils down to the host feeding, housing, and not overly pestering the guest until they are settled. The guest, in their part, must be respectful, not abuse the host's hospitality. Upon departure, it is common to exchange gifts, or at the very least, the host should give a gift. The pair are then bonded in Xenia, and in myth, as well as historical times, this is a significant bond. We shall see in Book 6 of the Iliad that Diomedes refrains from fighting with the Lycian captain Glaucus due to their discovery that their grandfathers were Xenoi, or guest friends. In Greek history, during the Peloponnesian War, the general Alcibiades leveraged his family's guest friendship relationship with the Spartan aristocracy to grant him refuge from the Athenians, right before they were about to put him on trial. He then aided the Spartan military against the Athenians and dragged out the war even further. There are other historical examples of Xenia, but believe me when I say the ancient Greeks took it very seriously, and it would be constantly on their minds through scenes like this in the Iliad when talking about the destruction of Troy. This is because Paris defiled the Xenia relationship with Menelaus 
by abducting Helen, his wife, and absconding with much of his wealth. Okay, so that's Paris. But the city of Troy is also complicit because they accepted him and his stolen bride, as we saw from Priam in the Tecoscopia in Book 3. So clearly both Paris and Troy are guilty of breaking the custom of Xenia. This is starting to make sense, but surely Zeus can make an exception for his favorite city, right? Wrong. Because Zeus himself is the defender of Xenia. In fact, a common invocation of his name is Zeus Xenios, referring to the king of the gods' role as protector of strangers and enforcer of Xenia. Zeus Xenios embodies the Greeks' moral obligation to protect strangers and be hospitable for foreigners and guests. Thus, as much as Zeus loves Troy, for this reason he knows it must fall. But not without giving Troy its last moments of glory, which is partially why he favors Hector so much throughout the poem. The custom of Xenia features even more prominently in the Odyssey, as Odysseus travels around to so many different places and peoples. Some are exemplary hosts, others, ones more, I guess, cyclopean, are, well, not. Safe to say we will be covering Xenia in much closer detail when I eventually make it to the Odyssey. With the gods' aims temporarily aligned thanks to the maneuvering of Zeus, Athena speeds down to the battlefield to stir up some trouble. She approaches a certain Trojan, Pandarus, son of Lycaon, in disguise and says to him, quote, Surely now you would listen to me, son of wise Lycaon? Would you dare let fly a sharp arrow against Menelaus? You would win gratitude and honor in the eyes of all Trojans, above all from King Alexandros, end quote. She goes on to tell him about the gifts he would receive, and how he should dedicate a sacrifice to the archer god Apollo in order to make the shot. The text then reads, So spoke Athena, and persuaded the fool's wits. Pandarus then reaches for his bow, and we are treated to quite the epic description, drawing out and lengthening the scene dramatically. We're told where the bow came from, the horns of the wild goat that Pandarus shot, sixteen palms wide, fitted by a master craftsman with gold tips. Note, 16 palms wide is almost comically large for a bow, so Homer is embellishing here to the extreme. Pandara strings the bow carefully, and his companions shield him. He knocks an arrow never before shot, makes a prayer to Apollo promising a sacrifice of firstborn sheep upon his return. He draws the arrow to his chest, stretching the bow in a great arc, and the arrow sprang forth, straining to fly into the battle throng. This is a lot of text for someone just shooting an arrow, an action that would normally take about five seconds. But this is not an ordinary shot of a bow. If we consider the larger scene at hand, the armies meeting, duel between the heroes, the lack of clear outcome from the fight, we are teetering on the precipice of total war or peace. But we know Zeus has decreed war. With that hanging in the balance, Homer pauses. He lengthens the scene. This is an important action, and he wants us to be held in the tension of that bowstring. This description of the bow is also unique when compared to modern literature. When an author describes an object in detail, oftentimes it is sufficient to just list every detail about the item. But Homer recognizes the limitations of his medium. To stop and list each detail of the intricately crafted bow, one by one, would halt the momentum of the scene. He wants to paint a picture, but he cannot stop to paint the picture. So he turns the image of the bow into a story, 
the story of how it was created and came to Troy in the hands of Pindarus. He has transformed the static image of the bow into its living, breathing history, starting from the mighty horns of the goat to the craftsman to the field of Troy where it was destined. Notice how the narrative flows from Athena's initial beckoning of Pandarus right into the description and then into the action. Scholar E.T. Owens, of whom this will not be my last reference to, points out that this scene highlights another characteristic of Homer's style. That is the extraordinary prominence he gives to seemingly minute details. Owens describes it, quote, It has been likened to the absence of perspective in primitive pictures. Figures that belong to the background and foreground alike are all set out in a row. Whatever the poet is speaking of seems to occupy his whole and enthusiastic attention. It fills for the time being the whole stage. End quote. This is the Homeric epic style. Everything is heightened, elevated, elaborated, and made important. Everything is epic. Before we continue, I'd like to point out a small anachronism contained in the stringing of the bow scene. Pandarus is preparing to fire the arrow and, quote, then brought the bowstring to his chest and the iron point to the bow, end quote. Wait a minute, iron? I thought this was the Bronze Age. All the heroes are wearing bronze. What gives? I know, I know, dear listener, I was as confused as you are. Why is Pandarus using iron arrowheads when all of the other weapons are bronze? And I know what you are going to say next. In Book 23, when the Achaeans are partaking in the funeral games for Patroclus, a lump of iron is given as a prize. Achilles also says that this lump of iron will last a long time for whoever wins it, implying that iron is in some way scarce. This anachronism is one piece of evidence for the poem's ongoing development into the Iron Age, as the poet would have chosen the arrowhead to be iron because that would be the metal his audience is most familiar with. It's a small point but I bring it up here because it's important to remember that the Iliad is not a work fixed in any one point in time. It's not like our modern novels. It's a cultural product that was worked on by many minds over vast stretches of time, and we possess just a single version that is crystallized in written form. With the treacherous arrow straining to hit its target, Athena, not forgetting her champion this time, brushes it aside like a mother brushing away a fly from her sleeping child. The arrow is directed to hit a gap between the breastplates where the belt is covering the skin. Such a spot is well chosen by Athena for its emotional effect. To a bystander, it appears that Menelaus has been gravely wounded. Only in the next few lines do we realize that it's just a superficial wound. The wounding of Menelaus is specially felt by his brother Agamemnon, who is worried that he has sent his own brother to his death with the binding oath he made at the beginning of the bout. Agamemnon states explicitly, quote, Beloved brother, the oath I cut was your death. When I put you forward before the Achaeans to fight alone with the Trojans, seeing now that the Trojans have struck you and trampled underfoot the sacred treaty, yet in no way was our oath in vain, and the blood of lambs and the unmixed libations and pledges of hand we trusted. For even if the Olympian does not accomplish this at once, he will accomplish it in full, though late and they will pay greatly with their heads and their women and their children. For I know this well in my mind and in my heart. There will sometime be a day when Holy Ilion is destroyed. End quote. Yet another prophecy about the fall of Troy, and this time from the leader of the expedition. 
Let's remember Agamemnon's surety here and see if it holds up later on in the story. The rest of Agamemnon's speech to his brother makes him seem less worried about his brother's death and more about him losing faith should his brother die and he have to return home empty-handed. But hey, this is heroic society, and face is everything. Agamemnon summons the healer, and we are introduced to a new character, Machaon. Machaon is the son of Asclepius, the god of medicine and healing, who is in turn the son of Apollo. Asclepius is a very important figure in the mind of ancient Greece, with numerous temples that functioned, more or less, as religious hospitals. Remember, the listeners to this tale would know this detail implicitly and feel immediately reassured of Menelaus' recovery. Machaon seems to show up at pivotal moments in the story, as we shall see. In Book 11, he's wounded, which causes a panic amongst the Greeks. And when he's conveyed back to camp by Nestor, Achilles sends Patroclus to investigate. This action seals the fate of both men forever. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Machaon attends to Menelaus, and Agamemnon rallies the troops, who are all more than eager for battle over the breach of the oath. Moving from group to group, he exhorts or shames those who are ready and eager or cowardly and lagging. He comes upon the Cretans and praises Idomeneus and Meriones. Next, the two Antes, Helamonian Ajax, son of Telamon and cousin of Achilles, and Locrian Ajax, son of Oileus. These two need no encouragement, Agamemnon says, and we shall see indeed later that they do not. One of Telamonian Ajax's common epithets is Aias Promachos Achaion. Promachos translates to forefighter from the prefix pro and the root makos, meaning battle. And battle in the four Ajax does. We shall see that Agamemnon's assessment here is accurate, and Ajax is constantly at the front of battle and relied upon by many lesser troops for help. Agamemnon moves on to Nestor, who's wisely marshalling his men into a logical formation, chariots in the front, foot soldiers behind them forming a wall, and the spiritless men in the center, so that they would have to do battle on account of being stuck in the middle. Some ancient military historians argue that this section describing the formation of Nestor's troops and later depictions of battle within the Iliad is the first instance of phalanx warfare that is detectable in Greek history. For reference, Phalanx is the formation favored by all Greeks of antiquity, involving closely packed lines of soldiers with spears and large shields. The phalanx would dictate warfare in Greece until the time of Alexander the Great, roughly 400 years. It is also depicted in the movie 300. The development of ancient Greek warfare is a fascinating and deep rabbit hole in its own right, which I encourage you to explore. There are many great podcasts on this topic. After Nestor gives a long-winded tale about the good old days, Agamemnon moves on to Menestheus and the Athenians, and Odysseus and his Cephalanians, who are just waiting for the fighting to start. Agamemnon rebukes Menestheus for standing idle, to which Odysseus counters him back, reminding him of his feats and ending with the retort, Sude tauten emolia batses, translated as, These words you speak are so much wind. I can't help but think that Odysseus takes these words personally as this very same morning, he was the one who saved the entire expedition from ruin when he marshaled the troops together using Agamemnon's scepter. This goes to show us Odysseus's pride and high opinion of himself, and also distinguishes him from two other prominent heroes, Achilles and Diomedes. While Achilles flies into an implacable rage at slights of his honor, 
Odysseus, the favorite of Athena, goddess of wisdom, is much more capable of standing his ground and hurling words of abuse at his detractors. These two reactions are completely different from Diomedes, as we shall shortly see. Agamemnon then moves on to Diomedes, whom the next few chapters will focus closely. Homer has chosen this warrior as the last to address for this exact reason. Diomedes is the first character in the poem to have an aristeia, or a moment of martial excellence. Diomedes as a character is very important to the story. In a way, he can be considered the main character of the Iliad when Achilles isn't there, since for many books we are directly focused on his actions. He is the son of Tydeus, who was part of the Seven Against Thebes, a different epic story that occurs before the Trojan War about seven warriors who attempted to restore Oedipus' son Polynices to the throne of Thebes. The first attempt of the seven failed, and Tydeus, then a favorite of Athena, much like his son, was nearly made immortal by the goddess, who stopped just short before delivering the immortalizing ambrosia when she saw Tydeus eating the brains of a defeated warrior who wounded him. Very strange. This is one of only a few accounts of cannibalism in Greek mythology, and as far as I know, the only intentional one. Thus, Diomedes is son of a great warrior, favored by Athena, and known throughout both real and mythological Greece. With this backstory in mind, Agamemnon shames Diomedes with the legends of his father. He recounts how Tydeus and Polynices, trying to recruit men for the war against Thebes, stopped in Mycenae. On the way back, they encountered some Thebans, who challenged them to all sorts of athletic contests. Tydeus defeated them all easily, and their bruised egos made them set an ambush for him, where Tydeus slew 49 out of 50 of them, leaving the last one alive because of signs from the gods. Such a man was Aetolian Tydeus, but he begat a son inferior to him in battle, but more skilled in public speaking. This is the harshest rebuke that Agamemnon doles out in his inspection of the troops, and is more or less entirely undeserved. Agamemnon has treated Diomedes here like he has treated Achilles. But different from Achilles, Diomedes, quote, did not answer him at all, respecting the rebuke of an honored king, end quote. I mentioned in episode 2 that when Agamemnon insults other warriors, they don't react the same way that Achilles does. And this is an important distinction between the two. Whereas Achilles could not tolerate the slight towards his honor because of his personal worldview, Diomedes is able to bite his tongue. He exhibits an important concept to the ancient Greeks, that of sophrosune, which translates roughly to soundness of mind. Diomedes knows not to fight back against Agamemnon. No good could come of that. Better to prove Agamemnon wrong with his actions than his words. Instead, to mark the situation as distinct, Homer has Stenelus reply to Agamemnon. This allows Diomedes to rebuke him and declare his respect for Agamemnon's authority. This scene is what Book 4 has been building to. We first had to see all the other Achaean chieftains, hear about them, have Agamemnon praise some, rebuke others, see Odysseus fire back at Agamemnon, just so we could come to Diomedes and see his true character. We need to see clearly his character, how he reacts to Agamemnon in comparison to others, and as Owens puts it, quote, to supply a background against which we view and measure the conduct of Achilles when he takes the field, end quote. With the characterization dealt with, the stage is set. With a mighty clash, Diomedes dismounts his chariot, marking the beginning of destructive war. Homer continues, 
quote, as when waves of the sea dash on the thundering shore, one after another under power of the west wind moving, the wave rises first in the open sea, then, shattering on land, it roars mightily, and curling as it goes, breaks around the headland and spatters foam on the salt sea. So in this way did the ranks of Danaeans move one after another ceaselessly to war. End quote. This is, after all, a poem about war. The movement of armies is an epic occasion, and thus Homer marks the transition from interest in singular characters to that of a group with several similes. This transition of scope is similar to what we saw earlier when the armies began to move. Homer pans the camera back out this time. The Greeks, silent and unified, are contrasted against the noisy and ununified Trojans who speak many languages. Then Homer further divides the sides, the Trojans being urged on by Ares and the Greeks by Athena. A quick note on the differences between these two war deities. Athena, who is also the goddess of wisdom, represents that aspect of war which is fought with strategy and cunning. She is the goddess who inspired the Trojan horse, and the one who tricks Hector into accepting his fate in Book 22. Within the story, she is also firmly on the Greek side, as she was slighted by Paris when he gave the apple to Aphrodite. Ares, on the other hand, represents the rout, the slaughters, violent side of warfare. In the Iliad, Ares rushes into battle without thinking, goading the Trojans to fight the Greeks despite being severely outnumbered. Thus Homer's assignment of each god to either side is meant to reflect the Achaeans' righteousness in their cause and the Trojan hubris in fighting back. In addition to Athena and Ares, Homer mentions terror, panic, and strife as present on the battlefield. Their Greek names are Deimos, Phobos, and Eris. To clarify, Deimos is the dread or terror you feel before battle, and Phobos is the fear and panic you feel during battle. Just so we have that cleared up. And of course, we recognize Eris, the cause of the whole war after all. Homer's characterization of her is fantastic. Quote, she is small when she first rises up, but in the end, she leans her head against the heavens even as she strides upon the earth. End quote. The strife just grows and grows as both armies give way to their bloodlust. What follows is a classic Iliad battle scene. Heroes killing heroes, fighting over their armor, dying for it, and their comrades coming to retrieve their body, and then they themselves dying. It's all very bleak, especially when it's punctuated with the description of each hero's backstory. One hero with a particularly vivid description is that of young Simoisius. Homer describes the scene, quote, Then Telamonian Ajax struck the son of Enthemion, virginal Simoisius in the flower of youth, whom time ago his mother, descending from Mount Ida, bore by the banks of the river Simeus, when she followed with her parents to watch the flocks, and for this reason they named him Simoisius. His parents he did not repay for his nurture, and short life was allotted to him, who was broken under the spear of great-hearted Ajax. End quote. This is how oh so many of the deaths go in the Iliad. We briefly meet a minor character and are told a very small, very human bit of information about them, and then they are brutally slaughtered in graphic detail. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. This is a war poem. But I will also assert that the Iliad does not glorify war. The Iliad simply 
shows us war, up close and personal. Here we see a young man, in the flower of youth, virginal, who will never return to his mother and father, since he was broken under the spear of an enemy invader, mere miles from the riverbank where he was born. This is simply horrible. But it is real. The Iliad shows us all facets of war, especially its consequences. In fact, the consequences of war is one of its central themes. The final line to draw the book to a close reads, quote, There a man coming upon the scene would not make light of the work of war. Someone still unharmed and unwounded by sharp bronze, who whirled through their midst with Pallas Athena to lead him, by the hand and to ward off the onslaught of spears thrown. For many Trojans and Achaeans on that day lay sprawled face down in the dust beside one another. End quote. This sort of rhetorical statement by the poet should also be considered through the lens of the audience who would have heard it. Ancient Greece was a period of nearly constant warfare at some level, and it was fully expected that any man old enough to hold a spear would defend his city in times of need. So an ancient audience hearing it would surely appreciate the weight of these words and not make light of the work of war. Perhaps, in a way, this is the appeal of the Iliad. Thankfully, many of us have never seen war firsthand, but by reading this poem we are led by Pallas Athena through the throng of warriors killing and being killed, and we can glimpse a fraction of its real cost and horror. With the bloody end to this book, I would like to take some time to preface the next few, even bloodier books we are about to read by dissecting the Homeric device called the Aristeia. The word Aristeia derives from the Greek word aristos, meaning excellence, and in the context of the Iliad, it refers to a warrior's greatest martial achievement, usually mowing down heaps of enemies and raging about the battlefield in a bloody swath. The warrior's Aristeia is important because it is the source and reason for the kleos. I covered the definition of kleos and its important to Homeric warriors in episode 2, but essentially, Kleos is that which is heard about you. It is your fame and glory that survives you after you die. By performing the great feats of martial excellence and strength, a warrior earns their Kleos by having their deeds remembered. This provides the incentive for a warrior to strive to do such daring and dangerous exploits, and is the engine for Homeric warrior conduct in a very general sense. There are five distinct Aristea in the Iliad, Diomedes in Book 5-6, to six, which we are about to hear, Hector's, whose Aristea is less well-defined and sort of fills the cracks of the story, Agamemnon's, his Aristea is a pivotal moment in Book 13, Patroclus, whose Aristea ends in his own death in Book 16, and finally Achilles, whose Aristea in Books 20-22 to 22 is the culmination of the rage he has felt since Book 1. It is meant to be viewed in the light of all the Aristea we have thus far witnessed. The Aristea is a type of literary device in Homer called a type scene. Type scene is a repeated description in Homer where some common action occurs that the poet may use identical words and phrases to describe. Common ones are the preparation of a sacrifice or the arming of a warrior. Both occur frequently throughout the poem and are described in nearly the exact same way. I say nearly the exact same way, because while many type scenes are described to a letter the same as the previous one, many are not, and their degree of resemblance is an interesting point of analysis. Type scenes are thought to exist as an oral performative method to aid memory and live composition. Familiarity with a set sequence of events 
would lessen the chance of omitting an important step in the sequence and allows the poet the means by which to easily contract or expand this section of the story. Instead of adding more steps in the sequence, all they need to do is elaborate on the steps of the type scene to increase its length. This can occur without losing track of the scene, and the poet can shape each scene as necessary. The Ariste is certainly on the larger side of what is considered a type scene, and itself comprises smaller type scenes, but the Aristea does contain repeated elements that are shared across the several examples we have in the Iliad. These elements are, firstly, the warrior arming themselves. Special attention is given to the gleam of the warrior's armor. Next, the hero charges into battle and kills several enemy heroes, causing a rout amongst them. Then he is wounded and his charge comes to an end. Next, he prays to a god or goddess who heals him and he returns to battle. He then kills a singular opponent, often an enemy leader of high reputation. And finally, there's a struggle over the body of the corpse, but it is eventually recovered by the dead hero's friends, sometimes with the help of the gods. Like I said before, Homer does not do every Aristea in the same way, certainly not. It's much more illuminating to read each Aristea and reflect on what is different from the above formula and why. Diomedes' Aristea for example, is the most formulaic of the five, but doesn't contain an arming scene. His occurs first in the story, and so we are meant to compare the other Aristeas to his own. Contrast this with the extensive arming scene of King Agamemnon, and we understand Diomedes' relative position in terms of authority and wealth. Agamemnon's display of martial skill falls notably short of Diomedes, which clearly demonstrates the difference between martial prowess and martial authority held by different characters in the Iliad. From this, we are meant to think of Achilles' grievances in Book 1, that despite showing the greatest merit in battle, his honor is simply less because of an existing, unchangeable hierarchy. Since Aristeas make up much of the Iliad, their structure plays an important role in our perception of the events. This will become more apparent as Hector develops as a character, and we view the culmination of his extended Aristea, and finally, his death. Well, that's book four. We have had our first taste of Homeric warfare, and Athena has guided us through the carnage and chaos relatively unscathed. There's much more warfare to come, but take heart. I will highlight why it is not all doom and gloom in the Iliad. Of course, the next episode will cover book five, the longest book in the poem, and containing the aforementioned Aristea of Diomedes. If you're loving the podcast and want to hear even more, please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts, or follow me on Substack to get all the episodes and anything else I find interesting on the Homeric epics, all for free. Until then, erostai akustoi philoi.